Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance, and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records, all from a single unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. Synopsys helps organizations build secure, high-quality software, minimizing risks while maximizing speed and productivity. Synopsys, a recognized leader in application security, provides static analysis, software composition analysis, and dynamic analysis solutions that enable teams to quickly find and fix vulnerabilities and defects in proprietary code, open source components, and application behavior. With a combination of industry-leading tools, services, and expertise, only Synopsys helps organizations optimize security and quality in DevSecOps and throughout the software development lifecycle. The new Security Weekly website is officially live. Visit securityweekly.com to check out all of our new sorting and filtering functionality. Please let us know if you find any issues or have any feedback by sending email to website at securityweekly.net. Paul, our very own Paul, will, will be providing his insights and predictions in the information and cybersecurity space at a local ISC Squared Rhode Island chapter meeting on Monday, November 18th at Greg's Restaurant in Providence. If you would like to join us, go to securityweekly.com slash ISC2RI. So that looks like always fun. I, I always like the local meetups out here in the Bay Area because it's a great chance to uh, just chat with people, figure out what they're working on, as well as just to um, realize that we, the information security community tackles some big topics, but it tends to be rather small. Um, so that's maybe, always pretty fun. Yeah, maybe I'll get some uh, a free dinner out of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh. Well, it's not. I guess I don't have a good way segue for free dinner, and this was not free vulns because they were very well paid for. But the the latest of the biannual um, pwn to own hacking contest um, just uh, announced their results last week, and um, it was pretty interesting because they a, a lot of the targets this time were hardware devices, things like the Amazon Echo, a um, bunch of Wi-Fi routers, as well as I believe there were some phones that were. Uh, in there as well. But to me, one of the things that was, I think, most interesting is that if you're running JavaScript within your IoT device or within your other device, you're going to fall. Because pretty much, I didn't do the full count, but there was a Java integer overflow, another Java integer overflow, a Java use after free, another Java, or JavaScript, sorry, use after free, another JavaScript out of bounds check that led to an RCE. So it's pretty much kind of a, a bit of an indictment, perhaps not on the language, we can set aside language wars, but an indictment on how difficult it is to create a compiler for JavaScript that can man handle all of the 
robust capabilities and essentially creativity that people can put into writing JavaScript, as well as actually being, you know, not becoming brittle, being resilient against flaws. So first of all, are we surprised that these devices fell? No. <laughs> I mean, we've seen no. these and we'll, we'll see more of these, right? I mean, it's, we'll see more. it's the nature of IoT. It's, it's going to continue to happen. But I think you bring up a very good point, Mike, in that one of the primary attacks happens to be JavaScript. So the question is, is somebody out there thinking about a better way to drive an interface on these devices um, that makes it more secure, right? I mean, we've seen the application of technology to these uh, IoT devices and, and sometimes just failing miserably. Maybe, and maybe JavaScript is, is one of these scenarios, right? Where maybe what we have to think about is a different way to approach the user interface aspects of setting these devices up and, and eliminating JavaScript maybe out of these devices and, and coming up with something a little more mm, secure. Nah, just a thought. <laughs> just a thought. It reminds, well, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, um, Ada, right? Ada was never designed, never intended to be used. Was it Ada or, or Pascal? Not both. No, maybe Pascal. It was never designed, never intended to be used for anything other than a language to teach people how to program. Um, and it took us quite a while to get rid of it. And JavaScript, unfortunately, someone thought it was a good idea in the beginning to use in a browser. But, um, man, I'm going to be happy when the day this thing goes away, personally. I know we're not getting into language wars, but um, I, I might have a, opinions on that. <laughs> it's just I, I agree. Just, just a few. Me too. But what's interesting is that because um, there's a couple things I can imagine here. One is that you have uh, kind of to John's point, if everybody knows JavaScript or there's, you know, in, in the space, in, in this, by the end of the show, there will be at least two new JavaScript frameworks, I'm sure, de de <laughs> developed. But, um, you know, if everybody knows it, you might as well deploy or write, you know, support a language that everybody knows. Um, there are other languages out there that can be perhaps more embedded friendly. Um, but maybe they just haven't gotten picked up enough. One that comes to mind uh, actually is Lua. And um, I first encountered Lua because that's what uh, Blizzard used for um, to be able to, to skin and write the UI for uh, WoW, for their World of Warcraft. You could customize with a lot of Lua. And just imagine they were very um, interested in countering cheating. Um, they were very interested in making sure something was secure. And sure, they could have gone a JavaScript route, but with Lua, they were able to actually have a much more uh, constrained language and also have, say, we're not going to use the components that allow networking or the components that allow these other types of uh, file handling or data handling. It's going to be it's going to be, you know, basically the idea of least privilege applied to a programming language. And that kind of is what we're lacking a little bit with JavaScript, as well as just lacking the ability to have a hardened JIT environment so that we can have a language that's still easy to write. Um, and and uh, and and perform it when when we execute it. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think let's yeah, and, and I'll just leave that when we execute it ambiguous um, sure. as we roll into the uh, <laughs> the next topic. So one of the other things that I, that I pulled out this week um, was an interesting uh, bug. This was um, a glitch in a Robinhood. So Robinhood is a basically. Um, 
doing uh, stock transactions, stock trading. And there's a logic flaw here that basically allowed a user to increase the amount of leverage that they would have for margin trading. So sort of to be sort of hopefully still somewhat accurate and put it into non-trading terms, basically they're saying that the app said, put up some money and you can ask for some additional money on loan. And we'll just base this on how much money is in your account. What the flaw was is that when you would put up some money, ask for a loan, get that in there, um, then when you ask, you could basically continue to do this. And the value of your money that you're putting up was also including all the prior loans, essentially, that the app had been giving you to be able to increase what how you're going to trade on margin and so essentially um it was talking this one user was explaining how they went um you know turned essentially two thousand dollars into a hundred thousand dollars uh to be trading with based on being able to um, continuously exercise this particular logic flaw and i thought that was pretty interesting because it's not something that normally you would call out in many of the injection type of flaws from the OWASP top 10 it may not be something that you would come that might come immediately to mind in your unit testing that we were just talking about in the segment before. Um, but ideally it would if you had sort of a threat modeling exercise um, thinking about with your developers about how could this be abused or what happens if a, a, a bad actor or let's just call it a, a greedy or even just a smart or clever actor went through this particular workflow. Yeah, back to uh, two points. One, you should have gone from free dinner to free money. That would have been the segue. <laughs> just saying. Ah, so much better. That's better. <laughs> but we were just talking about testing, right? And, and testing functionality yeah. of your code. This is a perfect example of a missed unit test in functionality because this could have been tested for in the application as part of the testing process in the pipeline. Uh, one that was missed and, and allowed people to gain a lot of extra money they probably shouldn't have had access to. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, going, it's going to be interesting to see FINRA is going to be, someone over there is going to be having a few hard conversations with FINRA, right? Because um, it sounds like, at least from those two stories which are mentioned in there, in the article, it doesn't sound like this was just happening over a few days. It sounds like this was going on for a while. There's supposed to be someone signing off on trade and trade audits. So um, I guess maybe Robin Hood isn't going out to public markets, but still, there's something in there where you know th this this should have been caught a lot sooner, I suspect. Um, and then the second thought around there is, um, uh, oh man, I lost it. Oh well, keep going. I had a handoff for you. But... <laughs> well then, um, yeah, great point, Matt. I think the other thing here too, this is one of those few bugs that also has a very concrete value, you know, financial loss associated with it. Um, we were talking about pwn to own, and I did actually purposefully kind of gloss over the value of what all these bugs were, because I think that kind of dilutes the the importance and the message around what, one, JavaScript being creaky, and that if you have a dedicated team of two or three people with, you know, three to six months of time to research against a particular device, they're going to find some flaws and they're going to be compensated for that time in either like a pwn to own or in a um you know privately or by exploiting the app in this case or and i'll use this for the segue um while john is still you know trying to remember what that other additional thought was um our other article was just kind of a, a um 
this is more just a, a point of interest about Bug Crowd saying they'd paid out what five hundred thousand k um, in a week, and that was yeah. um, a, a, a big a big payout for them. Yeah, my my segue was going to be that uh, um, you know we talked about testing and unit testing the, the previous hour previous half hour. Um, really, these guys were allowing you know testing in public and production with you know they were doing basically um, bug bounty without <laughs> paying people. So. Yeah, it's um, yeah. It, yeah. we were talking we were talking about bug bounty a few episodes back, and um, still very interested in talking to folks out there who make this is how they make their money. Um, but it's it's uh, you know it, they had some interesting stats in there, not just the 500k in a week, but what 1.6 mil I think it was over the month, um, mm -hmm. and then I think I want to say around 600 vulnerabilities for the month, if I remember right. So it's it's. It's it, I I don't know I hope they do that they pu they publish that monthly because that'd be a fun stat to watch the report come out from that that could be like their equivalent of the their Verizon v, uh, DBIR um, but I think that could be really interesting to watch over over time see how it changes or grows yeah so I'm curious about this one if you're bug crowd is this a good thing or a bad thing from a business model perspective? Because think about this. I mean, that's a pretty big payout in one month, 1.6 million, you know, 513,000 in one week, which is what you're trying to incentivize, right? You're trying to incentivize this uh, crowdsourcing of, of identifying bugs. But is, is this a good or bad thing from a business model perspective? Because, you know, if that trend continues, it could run you out of money. <laughs> well, they're just they're just well, spending their their customer money, right? So, because um, really, their customers is just companies that want um, people to test in a um, in an organized manner. So, um, it'd be interesting. Yeah, so it's yeah, all good. I, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember if there. I mean, there is one downside, but I can't remember if they if they commission per payment or if it's per month. Which way they do it. Um, Oh man, my brain's really shot today. So they, oh, fine, keep going. I'll, I'll forget I'll my, my thought again, and we get to the next one. Yeah, I think to 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 that point, it, this is you know, Bug Crowd's taking essentially a cut of this as the 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 bounties are coming out of um the the companies where they're being found. But that still, you know, I think it still is a really important question. Like, is this a good thing, or what? What does this really mean? I, I wanted to highlight this. Article because we had talked about it uh, a few weeks ago, so I thought it was you know was still on my mind, and really I, I guess one of the things is pointing to is that for paying a lot of money that's fine, but go and do the math about you know 1.6 million dollars paid to 550 people, and then break that down onto what's that dollar per volume. And once you start paying around, I think it's you know around nine hundred dollars, or for for a for a, a called a common vuln, or or their top rated vulns can be three thousand dollars on average. You could also potentially just pay for a pen test and you know get a lot of value in terms of coverage or finding vulnerabilities. So there's definitely these trade-offs here. And you know, Bug Crowd, to their credit, are also and and the other um, platforms are also trying to address this idea of coverage and making sure that people are actually doing continuous looking around for bugs and getting rewarded for that um, when they find the bugs, but also figuring out if you know the three of us sat down and were poking around a website and didn't find anything for a week, that's you know time that we spent that we're not compensated for. So all interesting things. 
Um, but I think another interesting thing for me, and um, here's how I'm going to sneak back, eventually bringing fuzzers back into this segment as well. Um, Chrome uh, talked about their G- GWP ASAN, uh, which basically is a address sanitizer in the vein of LLVM's sanitizer that I've talked about several months ago. Um, and this one is specifically for going after heap problems. So this will be things like use after free, out of bounds, um, or um, and basically uh, page rights that that are page corruption. Um, and you know several of these are the types of problems that we actually have seen in that pwn to own contest. Um, within JavaScript. So what Chromium did here, and they have a really nice, um, somewhat technical write-up, is just describing a new approach to that they, they have deployed into Chrome. Um, but importantly, they can deploy this into production. So when I was talking about um, fuzzing and, and doing that, or turning on address sanitizers and UBSAN and a bunch of other these LLVM compiler sanitizers, these either have a really, they extend the compile time by quite a bit, or they're introducing instrumentation within the code that creates a um, overhead. So it could be you know, a two to three time overhead, which maybe doesn't sound necessarily bad, but if we go back and, and you know, roll the tape from I think even last episode and find out how many tabs that um, you know, Mac keeps open in his Chrome browser and how much it slows down his, his laptop, Trying to, to do that, you know, a two to three time overhead or slowdown is just going to make him pick it up and throw it out the window. I'm going to bet. Don't want to don't want to speak for you, Matt. But um, the idea here is that this reduces very minimal overhead by essentially sampling some of the heap allocations that are being done. So hooking into the normal um, malloc free process, the, the the allocators that the software is using, and then just over a period of time, just checking, hey, look like anything wrong here? Nope, nothing wrong here, nothing wrong here. And then when one of its guard pages or one of the, one of the areas of memory where it's tagged as nothing should have happened here, if that does get touched, then it immediately triggers a crash, which also helps developers say, here is where this crash was found. Now time to go debug the, inf- now time to go and debug it. And then before I take my next breath, I want to also say why I'm kind of excited about this is that not only will it find these um, memory corruption issues within Chromium or within the code they're using, it can also find and identify crashes that would be caused within um, third-party libraries they're pulling in or even on because of Mac OS that you can hook the allocator. It could even find crashes due to um, uh, heap, you know, misallocations or, or uh, heap overflows within code that's running in support of Chrome, but that isn't, you know, with is a system library itself. So all really interesting for all those reasons. At least I think so. I think John and, and Matt might have been put to sleep by that. We'll see. <laughs> no, I think this is, um, it's, you know, it, it, it takes a little more effort to crunch through an article like this. Um, and I'll, I'll admit, sometimes when I look at these with my my management hat on, I see like halfway down there's graphs. I'm like, ooh, pretty. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, yeah, it, it, it this is stuff that um, they're not just publishing this stuff for the hell of it. That there's actually value in the rest of us reading it and and seeing how do large projects like this 
um, learn and improve, and they're doing it in a transparent manner, which I think is really great. Yeah, and I think there's two things that are actually more, they're helpful to the broader ecosystem too. One is that this will, as I mentioned, it, it, you know, it's designed to find bugs in Chrome. But it's also going to find bugs in the system libraries and third-party libraries. So it's going to have that ancillary benefit to the ecosystem that's just running around the Chrome browser. So that'll be just a, a good uplift for everyone. So there's a great benefit there. Um, and the other thing, too, is they're not running this on like a fuzzing farm that they've spun up in GCP with, you know, a few thousand instances of Chrome. This is actually you could also think of this as the pretty large distributed, you know, memory sanitization effort that's running on, I'm going to guess, a few million, if not tens of million Chrome instances. So it's another way just that by that having that scale and seeing this be rolled out, it's probably going to be even more successful than um, their own you know, fuzzing environment just because of those, they can potentially run into so many different scenarios. So to pull back from the deep technical details, those two reasons, that scale and being able to find problems even outside of but around Chrome, I think are going to be great benefits for the security industry as a whole. Which yep. makes Chrome, you know, still one of the favorite browsers. Love them or hate them. I mean, it 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 has its. It's just so efficient for me. Like I said, you know, every every tab is its own little process, and so I just buy a quad core <laughs> i7 with more memory and call it a day. Call it a day. Well, we haven't finished our day quite yet, and um, we did get to um, join you, Matt. Uh, John and I joined you on a Business Security Weekly episode. And um, that kind of made me think of this article that I called out too, what CISOs, what CIOs want from CISOs. And um, the subhead right there kind of speaks to a theme of DevOps, DevSecOps, which is collaboration and not finger pointing. Um, so I just thought this was another article that was talking about that relationship. And we, we shifted up a bit higher to that C-level to the executive suite about how this relationship can work and what does it mean between um, who's who is basically assuming the risk and who's accruing the risk for a particular organization and who has the influence to be able to address it. Yeah, I, there were some interesting stats out of here that I just I, I want to read because I think they're they're really telling. In the UK, so this part of this was done. the The survey results in the UK. Sixty five percent of companies in the UK have a CISO or equivalent who reports to the CIO function, which means they're not peers. Uh, only twelve percent say that the CISO is a peer to the CIO. So think about that for a second, right? In the U.S., we've seen more of a CISO-CIO peer relationship, and therefore, as peers, you know, they need to learn to collaborate and, and work together. Um, in the U.K., the, 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 the CISO reports to the CIO, and the question is, how collaborative can you be when it's a, a boss mm -hmm. Um, you know, structure, um, which is kind of what this is trying to point out a little bit in this article, and that there still has to be collaboration, even though they're not considered peers per se, and 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 work together to solve the problem. And this is this is the crux of the DevSecOps movement: is how does security and the development teams, you know, rolling up to a CIO work together to achieve an outcome of speed and agility with security in the mix, right? And that means these guys have to be talking, have to be working and collaborating together to make this stuff work, which is the fundamental challenge I think we have 
um, in the DevSecOps movement right now? Is that collaboration not happening? No, I agree. And I think um, <clears throat> pushing through on two more articles to get through is, you know, I, I think this could also be tied into um, my next article is about AWS application patterns. And this I could still think, you know, there's a strategic aspect here of, you know, if we still have our thinking from the CIO and the CSO. And this article calls out not so much specific design patterns for developers, but it helped more in my sense as a way to, to map all these different AWS offerings into particular areas, conceptual areas, whether this in this case is calling around operations or security or reliability or performance. And it's just showing up, here is where to think of chaos engineering, which is general, but here is where ACLs and AWS IAM works in. Here is where AWS Trusted Advisor they're talking about, basically ways that AWS has built to introspect its own environment. And this this article talks about AWS, obviously, that's just what I was listing off, but we've also seen Azure has um, built a lot of similar capabilities as well to be able to introspect their own um, environment and be able to make these, understand what tools should you be using for the right job. Yeah. This ties in, I did add a couple articles, and this one uh, ties into kind of this discussion between hybrid cloud and multi-cloud and what mm. are they, because this this comes into play a little bit. Hybrid cloud, I think a lot of people get the two mixed up, right? And so if we think about a hybrid cloud, what's hybrid cloud? Well, that means I have some on-prem components and I have some cloud components. In the case of if you're a single cloud like an AWS, how do these... Um, tools and capabilities in that cloud provider help augment what you're doing on-prem. In a multi-cloud, things get a little more interesting because now you're using two cloud providers like an AWS and an Azure, and each one has its own set of capabilities. Now what do you do? How, how do you bring those two together? How do you um, manage those centrally because they're they're being provided by two different providers. Somebody has to bridge that gap, right? Which gets really, really interesting. So this article does a deeper dive into some of the nuances and differences between hybrid cloud and multi-cloud because things like these patterns are going to vary based on who your cloud provider is. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, I, just, I forgot to refresh. And um, yeah, so I see that article now and um, I guess I don't have any good insights that I could throw in or anything to add that you didn't already cover. Um, so one other thing that I called out was um, there was a article about taking advantage of the change freezes for this year. And this is also topical because uh, just last week we were talking about, well, if we have a change freeze, that means at what point do we get to talk about security? So we can't do it right now, so maybe we have to wait to January, but if January and your retail um, app is waiting for a big uh, Valentine's Day push, you don't wanna do anything in January, so maybe you have to wait till March, but then you're starting to get into something else and something else and so yeah. on. So th this article is just a nice way of saying, sure, there will be a change freeze, maybe you know, pick whatever the time it is, um, or, or since you're not picking what the time it is, is more, pick what to think about while you have that freeze, because there's a lot more than just writing code to consider about the application that you could be doing, about the or the processes you could be building, things like that. So I just threw this out there as some uh, food for thought to help kind of close the loop on, on, on that conversation.
Well, it, it talks about, you know, if you have a test environment, you can do some proof of concept testing on adding capabilities. We were talking about testing earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Change freeze might be the time where you build out some of those security tests and figure out how to integrate them into your pipeline. So that is when you unfreeze, now you can start to have those new integrated security tests in your pipeline because you didn't impact the current production environment. Just a thought. <laughs> Just a very good thought. Yeah. <laughs> I think we we do have um, one other one other um, article that got thrown in here. Were five super helpful Git commands. Yeah, I and, threw this in um, here for YouTube. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody sure. anybody use yeah, use these? I'm not sure Push I found them force, super helpful. I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 I that, that um, I I appreciate I appreciate the thought and that the. the both of, of yours, Matt, as well as the, the author behind it. Um, I think my big takeaway, uh, it really depends on what are you using Git for, right? Whoops. Um, if if you're actually coding with Git or are actually maybe running, um, it's it's your turn to, to do the merges and, and get stuff ready for testing and unit testing, as we were talking about before. Uh, you need to probably have a, a whole separate blog article about merging, because that's where I think things get interesting around Git. Um, the Git force, yeah, that 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 sort of set off my heckles as well, um, hackles. Uh, but yeah, I, I like the idea. I mean, it's, it'd be interesting. I think where where I'd like to go with this article is, um, you know, back in the day, I was I was a pretty strong opponent of DigitalOcean because one of their they did a great job marketing. Um, but what they did was just SEO juice like crazy. They got all their users to write blog posts on how to how to do X, how to do Y. And then they were just mining the SEO juice out of it like crazy. And like as a result, they're always showing up on top of results on Google. But the problem is that what you would get would be someone who had been running Linux for about two weeks telling you how to secure a Linux box. And it would just drive me nuts. Um, and I think some of the sites on, on Medium are doing something like that now. Uh, and again, you know, they're running a publication. I get it. Um, you know, Security Weekly Business, we're all, you know, here to not just, we want to encourage people, but also I just want people to do a little bit cleaner, safer way. Um, and there's a few larger of these um, sort of aggregation sites on Medium that I, I think they're allowing people to have a voice, which is great. But at the same time, I, hopefully there'll be a little bit of feedback on this article and, and suggesting people, suggesting to author maybe uh, um, better things to to. Uh, prioritize next time with Git. You mean you, you guys aren't a big fan of the Git reset command? Oh, I actually oh, use that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I use that all the time because <laughs> if, if there's one thing that's universal, it's messing up your emerge and destroying your, your tree and having to do a hard reset. So yeah, <laughs> that's at I, least I think, one of the ones that I've memorized. I okay, think some good. of them are really, you know, they're definitely something you use. But I think the question in an article like this, right, is how do you how do you really show value to people who are going to be reading it? And like, luckily, there are five bullets we can go through pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, hey, maybe there's maybe not talk about get amends, but talk about when you're doing a commit, you don't have to go into your editor. You can pass the um, your get your commit comment on the command line. So that might help save people time. So I think it's not so much just like, what are the five most commonly used or, or, or super awesome Git commands, but how can you use Git better? Yeah, I think that would be a great topic for for a future ASW because I think what you're really getting at there too is that this you know five bullet points are sort of divorced from a strategy of 
what is, you know, why would you need these or what's the context for them? What is your emerging strategy? You know, how do you go about cherry picking? Do you have, do you, does everyone work off of main branch or do you working off of feature branches? What's your branching strategy? As well as just talking about amend, how much do you care about the uh, visual cleanliness of, of your Git history versus that it should be immutable and going forward. And if there's a mistake, mistakes happen. And sure, it's going to be recorded for all time, but you don't want to be necessarily adjusting, um, you know, changing uh, changing hashes like that. Um, yeah. And I think that would be, yeah, I think all of those would be a great conversation to have. And uh, we might even have to get, well, 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 we'll get Paul to talk Matt into doing some of the coding too, so that <laughs> Matt can learn some of these Git commands and feel some of the pain as well. <laughs> my my favorite one of that one. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite one of, uh, of the last few months is um, using Git to merge two separate repos, like bring a, if you've started work on, on coding one project and you want to go, hey, that could be useful over here. How do you bring that in and keep your Git history? Um, but, you know, to, to circle back to the article, I, I, I wasn't actually going to bring it up because I don't want to make it sound like I'm just sitting here ripping on the author. I, I'm quite happy that that someone out there is posting stuff like this. Um, you know, the last thing I want to do is try and you know mute someone or censor someone. I'm just saying, hey, how can you um, learn and improve and and um, be more um, of a helper for other people? So hopefully, good things come. Yeah, I think that's a great message. We want to encourage not just to regurgitate what the, you know, what the git help command does, but here's mm -hmm. some of why, or here is, you know, here's a scenario where you've messed up your, your branch and here's how you can go and fix something, or here's how to get, pull yourself out of a, um, you know, quite confusing uh, state that you've put your repo into. And all those can definitely be helpful. So yeah, it'd be great to see more of the same and um, just more insight into using those for sure. And um, with that note, we hope our listeners, thank you for listening. And we hope you gained a little bit of insight, if not um, uh, an integer overflow amount of JavaScript insight for this this week. And we'll look and want to say thank you to Matt. Thank you to John. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly.